Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for August 15th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be diving into the news, talking about Sony's release day changes and how that deals with Bad Boys 3. We're going to be talking about Frank Miller's Superman Year One, Jessica Jones Season 2 casting, a Godzilla photo that teases a connection with the original film, and Tom Cruise's injury on the set of Mission Impossible 6, and... Sadly, a stuntman has died on the set of Deadpool 2. And the mailbag will be talking about recommendations for a teenage group of movies pre-2000 that that are, uh, you know, movies that aren't as well known. And in the spoiler room, we're going to be talking about this week's Game of Thrones and that letter from Eastwatch and what that might mean. I'm Peter Serrata, and with me today are Brad Oman. Hey, what's up? Ben Pearson. Hey there. And Huaytran Bui. Hey, everyone. Okay, let's dive into the news. Over the weekend, our weekend editor, Brad Oman, who you know is Ethan Anderson, was on the ball. Sony changed, uh, announced some release date changes, including Spider-Man and Bad Boys 3. Brad, what do we know? What What has happened here? 
Yeah, so uh, Sony's really going all in on this separate Spider-Man cinematic universe that has no ties to the Marvel Cinematic Universe and apparently won't include Tom Holland as Spider-Man. Uh, we know they already got Venom on track to come out in the fall of 2018, and now they've set what will be the next installment uh, of, as a Spider-Man spinoff, which is called Silver and Black. Uh, that's the movie that's meant to follow two characters who appeared quite frequently in Spider-Man comics, uh, Silver Sable, who's a mercenary who hunts down war criminals, and Black Cat, who is uh, basically like the Marvel Universe's Catwoman. She's a thief, um, and her alter ego, Felicia Hardy, was also a love interest for Peter Parker at one time. Um, so the movie has been set for February 8th, 2019, so it's still, still a ways out. I'm still really on the fence about how this whole separate Spider-Man universe is going to work. I don't know how these characters function without Spider-Man. Uh, I know, you know, I know these characters have their own comics uh, without Spider-Man, but they still exist in a world with Spider-Man and allow him to come in. But as far as movies are concerned, I just, I'm really having a hard time seeing how Sony's going to make this work without Spider-Man as an anchor. Yeah. And I, I know they've been pitching this as like the Thelma and Louise story for a comic book audience. So uh, that that seems interesting. Yeah. You know, everyone's been asking for that. But yeah, <laughs> but Brad, uh, Bad Boys 3, this is a movie that we don't need, but we want for whatever reason. Uh, you know, it's been delayed, pushed back. Joe Carnahan was going to direct it. Now he isn't. Michael Bay has notoriously said that it's never going to happen. When are we going to see Bad Boys 3? It seems like never now. Uh, it was previously set for November 9th, 2018, but now Sony completely took it off their calendar and they didn't set a replacement date like they did when they pushed it back before. And before, there was even talk about them doing both Bad Boys 3, which is called Bad Boys for Life, and Bad Boys 4. But apparently that's just not a thing that's happening now and i mean it seems like a pipe dream at this point because they've been trying so long to get it off the ground and yeah i just i feel like we're just never going to see it happen yeah i i i don't expect to ever see that also in the news at at comic-con they announced that frank miller was going to do a superman year one uh comic book comic book story and obviously frank miller has been is famous you know he did batman year one uh famous for these like reinventions of superheroes and a lot of fans were kind of like outraged about this because we don't want to see another Superman origin story. And we don't want to see another grim, you know, Superman uh, retelling. Uh, but uh, artist uh, uh, John Ramada Jr. has come out and talked to comicbook.com. Uh, Jack Drew wrote the story for Slash from the Comic. Basically, he says that this isn't going to be another Superman origin story, that this is going to take place after he lands and tell what happens in between the time he lands and the time he realizes what he is quote and this slight slant on the development of superman is that he's really unconscious that he's an alien till his parents tell him he's an alien in the meantime he just thinks he's special and he he doesn't appear in costume until the very end spoiler alert uh it's similar to daredevil man without fear back in the 1990s. Uh, I, I think this is a good idea for a comic book run. Although I feel like if you want this, you can already go and I think Max Landis did a run called 
Superman, American Alien, has a bunch of short anthology stories, and one of them is really about this coming of age and him realizing with the powers. Uh, it, it's good stuff. You should check it out. I think you can get it on, you know, Comicsology or Amazon right now. Uh, but let's move on from comics and jump into a comic book television adaptation. Jessica Jones season two is heating up, and we have now learned that David Tennant might be back for this upcoming season, despite not being alive and it, or his character not being alive in that universe. HT, you wrote the story for the site. What do we know? Yes. So it's confirmed that he will actually be back because uh, Entertainment Weekly released an official set photo from uh, Jessica Jones season two. And he's there standing with Kristen Ritter on set, uh, clad in his signature purple suit. Uh, so we don't know anything other than he's confirmed to return for the season. Uh, likely it will be for flashbacks. There's a small, small chance that he'll the character will actually return from the dead, despite, you know, actually getting his neck snapped on um, on screen. So that was a pretty definite death. But Marvel has a practice of bringing back their characters from the dead and often kind of uh, negating the impact of those deaths. Uh, Phil Coulson being number one. And um, I, I think I, he's a scroll, by the way, guys. I think oh, scroll, Phil, okay. Phil Coulson's a scroll. Okay, go on. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, that's that's the, um, that's that's the, the gist of it. it. Yeah. <laughs> also online, uh, uh, director Mike Doherty has released a new photo from Godzilla, his Godzilla sequel, teasing a connection with the original 1954 film. Ben, you wrote the article on Slash Film. What do we know? Yes. So Doherty shared a photo from the 41st day on set of a device called the Oxygen Destroyer, which appeared in the first uh, 1954 uh, Godzilla movie. This device was basically a huge uh, weapon of mass destruction that was used to kill Godzilla in the first film. Um, a scientist invented it and uh, saw the, the the tremendous potential of you know destruction that this thing held. He ended up destroying all the research and everything, and he actually uh, detonated the bomb himself, killing himself. So he he sort of um, in effect cut off uh, anybody else from being able to replicate this uh, you know this device. Uh, that being said, the <laughs> oxygen destroyer has showed up in other Godzilla movies later on down the line. It's unclear whether this is just going to be like an Easter egg or this, if this is going to be something that makes the original movie canon to this new monster verse incarnation of these films. Um, See, I don't, you know, I don't think that'd make much sense because it seems very clear when Godzilla showed up, we didn't know anything about him. Th- right. Time. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, unless they get into some sort of insane, you know, mind wiping technology <laughs> or something like that, I think it's probably going to be um, either reintroduced or, or I guess just introduced for the first time in this particular universe, uh, maybe to serve a similar function. But we also know that Godzilla is probably not going to die in Godzilla 2. Or if he is, he's going to be immediately resurrected because Godzilla versus Kong is coming up in 2020. So uh, <laughs> the giant lizard is almost certainly going to be a major part of the movie with his name in it uh, in a few years. So we'll see uh, how the oxygen destroyer happens to factor into Godzilla too. I can already see people on Twitter complaining about spoilers in this report, but (laughs) um, Brad, another story that broke over the weekend, Tom Cruise seemingly injured during filming uh, for a mission impossible six stunt. What do we know? 
Yeah, on a Sunday morning, this uh, video was making the rounds that, uh, unfortunately, it was TMZ that had it, so that's kind of a bummer. But anyway, it's a, it's a stunt of uh, them shooting in London where Tom Cruise was leaping from a scaffolding on one building uh, over to the rooftop of another building. And in the video, you can see as he's hooked up to a wire harness and everything, uh, when he makes the jump, you see him go um, fall behind the the ledge of the rooftop, and then he like it looks like he doesn't quite make it where he wanted to, and he pulls himself up and then quickly limps off camera. Uh, you know, Tom Cruise being the consummate professional finished the take rather than just stopping and being like, "Guys, sorry, I'm hurt." Uh, but as soon as he was off camera, he like kind of keeled over and like looked like he was like you know kind of recovering, and then he was limping as he walked away from there and then then, like he signaled to the crew on the other side to pull him back over and after they removed from the harness he was still limping some people think that he's actually not supposed to land the jump in this stunt that he's actually supposed to just catch himself and pull himself up which would be fair i mean you know we've seen ethan hunt fail at completing certain uh stunts before as an agent he's only human and as Tom Cruise gets older, I think that's an interesting dynamic to employ when you're dealing with someone who's a, a skilled secret agent but is also aging. At the same time, even if that was the case, it looks like he didn't exactly land on the ledge like he wanted to because he was limping away. So something clearly didn't go right. Uh, we don't know the extent of his injuries as to whether it's going to delay production or if he's actually hurt. But it's not the first time he's been hurt on a Mission Impossible movie. He uh, tore his shoulder once when they were doing rock climbing scenes for Mission Impossible 2. Uh, he hurt his ankle when he was running away from the exploding aquarium restaurant in the first Mission Impossible. And when he did that plane stunt in Rogue Nation, apparently a chunk of runway debris came up and hit him. And like it, apparently it hurt so bad that he thought he had broken a couple ribs. And he, but, but he he tells the crew like no matter what happens, keep shooting. Like that's just t- who Tom Cruise is. So. That's exactly you know what happened with the stunt, and hopefully he's okay, and you know he's not seriously injured. Yeah, Paramount hasn't released any statements, so I, I, I it doesn't seem like he's seriously injured, or we would have heard about it. Uh, Cruz famously does all of almost all of his own stunts for 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 these movies, and he's been promoting earlier on that this movie would have the biggest stunt yet. Not that we know what it is, um, and I remember talking to David Ellison the. Uh, the owner of Skydance Pictures about how they go through getting a insurance policy for you know one of the biggest movie stars in the world to hang off the side of the biggest <laughs> building in the world and uh, it, it is insane it is just insane that I, I don't know how he how he is allowed to do this stuff and uh, it always happens where when when you get injured it's not the biggest stunt that uh, usually injures or kills someone. It's it's usually something far less uh, exciting. Um, Today, we learned that a stuntman was killed during a driving stunt on Deadpool 2. HT, you're at the story for the site. What what do we know about this? So this was actually an unnamed stunt woman who got killed during a motorcycle crash. Um, uh, It was a motorcycle stunt gone wrong. Uh, on the set of Deadpool 2 in Vancouver. Uh, so she, it's unclear whether she died on the set uh, or whether she was injured and then taken to the hospital and died from her injuries there. Uh, but uh, police are, Vancouver police are currently investigating the 
the crash and um, other there more details will be released soon. But it seems uh, yeah, it was it was a crash that happened on Monday. And um, it it's a it's really unfortunate because it happened very soon after the um, the Walking Dead uh, stuntman died from injuries back in July. And yeah. that was the first uh, stunt related death that had been that had taken place in the U.S in 17 years so but apparently there has been sort of an uptick in fatalities and injuries um stunt related and on the film and tv uh according to the la times they did a study about how there's been sort of more competition to get bigger and get better uh with reality tv with a lot of films like with Mission Impossible, you were saying earlier how Tom Cruise promised that this would be even bigger and better than last time, and that has its consequences. Even though uh, since the 90s, there was sort of a decline because um, of the rise of digital effects and because studios and production companies were starting to take greater precautions. But um, with more blockbusters and tentpoles taking place where bigger means better, it kind of has seen these consequences like the Deadpool 2 uh, crash and the walking dead uh stuntman death and i've been on the set for a lot of these kind of stunt performances like on the set of a michael bay movie and when you see them prepare for something that involves a human in danger in danger you know like a explosion or a car you know just the prep and the speech that they give you know, like they get they have their stuff together but at the end of the day there's no magic to this there's a guy in a car a guy or woman in a car doing crazy stuff that, you know, there's not much protection there. You know, they're, they're doing it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so they're in, at risk. And that does it for the news. We're going to move on to the mailbag. Today in the mailbag, Brian from Texas asks, Hey, Peter, really enjoying the daily podcast. I am a high school teacher and I run a film club at my high school. I'm doing the best to expose my students to diverse range of films that they would likely not have seen before. Examples include uh, in the last year include Sing Street, Hunt for the Wilder People, Whiplash, Spirited Away. Uh, what are some of your suggestions for grade smaller or older pre-2000 films that teenagers would enjoy? Uh, for this mailbag segment we're going to bring on slash film managing editor jacob paul how's it going jacob going pretty good how about you guys good right um okay i'm I'm going to jump into this this is a weird vague question you know it's not very specific of like what kind of movies they're looking for uh so i i have a selection of movies i i've gathered that i'm not sure if are the answer he's looking for but vertigo is my go-to for a movie that is like an older older movie that uh i think a young audience might appreciate i feel like this is a film that uh you know it has like almost an m night Shyamalan kind of twist to it uh it has some great cinematography it's thrilling i I don't know it's old and it definitely has that older film pace to it but i think uh, a teenage audience could probably get into it. Uh, some other films, and I, I have mostly 90 films, 90s films, because I, you know, when I was a teenager, it was in the late 90s. So, uh, so my picks would be Alexander Payne's Election, which stars Reese Witherspoon and 
uh, Matthew Broderick, um, which I don't think would be a film that people in high school now would have seen because it came out before they were born, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that film is a dark comedy. It's funny. It's, uh, you know, I, I think it's re- really relevant to today, too. Uh, I, I think uh, any kid in high school would enjoy that film. Uh, before Sunrise is, you know, a great indie pick it, it, you know it's ethan hawk and julie delpy uh and it's basically them exploring what is it paris in that film i believe it's vienna or vienna, vienna. in that film sorry i'm mixing up my uh before sunset is paris yeah uh but i i think that's the type of film that not many kids of that age have probably seen and don't know that that kind of movie can exist it like feels very different than any movie that is out there um, you know, what Richard Linkletter does is very unique. And, um, and I think the, uh, you know, the, obviously the love and the conversations and the being up all night is something a kid can relate to. And my last and uh, final film on my list is one of my favorites, honestly, uh, Doug Lyman's go Doug Lyman, obviously the guy that did, uh, the first born movie, he did, uh, edge of tomorrow or whatever it's called now. Um, go, uh, is written by John August and um, it takes place. Uh, it's kind of like a Pulp Fiction esque. It has like a couple, couple, a few different narratives that intersect with each other in ways that you don't know. And uh, you know, at the center of this is a uh, a drug driven story and a rave. I'm not sure it's the best to be shown in school, but and there probably is a little bit of nudity in a. Uh, Vegas strip club but aside from that I think it is very smartly written it is uh it's it's a movie I've seen literally over a hundred times I, I I just love go so much and I feel like <laughs> for a second I thought you're gonna say it's a movie I've seen and just stop <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I, I think this is one of those movies that got uh you know it was in the shadow of Pulp Fiction and a lot of movies got kind of just I don't want to say dump, but like just <sighs> dismissed because as you know, Pulp Fiction knockoff and sure it uses that same kind of structure. Um, but I think it's, it's a very worthy filming. Yes. Katie Holmes is in it. Uh, there's a great performance from, uh, Oh my God. What's his name? The guy from justified and, uh, Timothy Oliphant, uh, it plays the drug drug dealer in that film. And th- th- those would be my, uh, four films that I would suggest. Ben, what films would you recommend? So Dead Poets Society kind of seems like a no brainer. I don't know if this is uh, I don't know if this is like because that movie came out in 1989. It's like you're saying with Election, Peter. I don't know what today's youth are uh, are seeing, how far back in film history they're really going. But that one is something that uh, spoke to me when I was that age. Um, same with uh, Sofia Coppola's The Virgin Suicides, which I've only seen once, but I, I remember liking a lot at that time in my life. Um, that movie is so good. I, I contemplating putting that, putting, putting that on my list as well. That's a great one. Yeah. And then, um, sneakers is just a really fun heist film that I don't think gets as much credit as it deserves these days. Not a lot of people, I mean, I think it has like a passionate following, but it's not a very large one. Um, Phil Alden Robinson directed that movie in 92 and it's got this great cast, Robert Redford, Dan Aykroyd, Ben Kingsley, uh, River Phoenix, Sidney Poitier, David Strathairn. I mean, it's like, it's a stacked movie. Um, and it's a lot of fun. I think that one 
you know, if, if people are, if these high school kids are digging, you know, the heist movies and want to see something that's maybe a little bit less conventional than some of the stuff that comes out now, I would recommend Sneakers. And then uh, I'm going to cheat on my last one, and that is um, Better Luck Tomorrow. It came out in 2002, so it's not pre-2000, but it's also pretty tough to see. Uh, or, yeah, no, no, no one's seen this movie. I mean, I've seen it, but no one. Yeah, I saw it. I saw it in uh, in here in Los Angeles at the Egyptian Theater. They did uh, a screening of it on the big screen, and I loved it. It was Justin Lin's. Um, I think it's his directorial debut or one of his earliest uh, feature films for sure. Yeah. Um, he of course went on to direct a bunch of the Fast and Furious movies, um, and this movie sort of uh, bridges the gap a little bit with Sung Kang's character. It's like kind of uh, notorious for being the starting point for the Han Solo character that shows up in the fast films. Um, but this is a movie that is, I saw, I've only seen it one time. Like I said, it's sort of tough to track down, but if you can, I would highly recommend it because it's one of my favorite high school films. It's um, it sort of upends uh, conventions about uh, Asian students. And I think um, people in high school, especially I would have loved this if I saw it in high school, I, I loved it when I saw it you know, a couple months ago, but I especially would have dug it uh, back then. And then, uh yeah i think that, that that'll that'll do it for me yeah and, and that film has john cho i think yes it, mm-hmm. it does have and, john cho it, it, it's a great film and honestly it was so great that once i saw it uh was it tokyo drift was the first movie he did in the fast mm-hmm. series yeah, yeah. I, was, I was actually kind of disappointed in that movie because I, I i loved better luck tomorrow so much uh and you can get it on dvd at least because i have it on dvd or awesome. had it on dvd ht what are your picks all right. So this prompt is really interesting because I wasn't sure whether to go for something more educational, uh, like school wise or doing or something that would be a good foundation for film students who are interested in expanding their film knowledge or whatever. So I kind of picked a lot of the ones in between as well as the ones that made an impact on me as a kid. I remember Ben, I watched Dead Poet Society in class in high school, and that was definitely one I would have picked, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so another one that I have is The Truman Show, uh, which was starring Jim Carrey. And um, that one, that movie has a lot to say about like fate, destiny, as well as the current 24-hour uh, reality news cycle, which is really interesting. It was pretty prescient, considering it came out in... Ooh, um, early 2000s, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Also, the the fact that the teacher says pre-2000 films are old makes me really sad. <laughs> As, despite being the <laughs> youngest person on this podcast, it's still, it's very sad. It saddens me a lot. Um, oh, oh, get ready for it. This is just the beginning, <laughs> HD. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Yay. Aging. Um, so, yeah, I think that one is a really good both foundational one for film, but also just for learning about life, you know? fate destiny and making your own fate um and then i the second one i have is psycho which is one that basically proliferates our pulp culture knowledge so i feel like people will grow up referencing it while not knowing not ever seeing the movie so i feel like if they see the movie early on they can actually get the references and see you know the iconic shower scene or the iconic um music score uh, next one is a very and, and, educational. And I, I just want to say, Andy could pair that with uh, Gus Van Sant's Psycho, which is a shot by shot remake of it. Just for from a film technique perspective, is in, interesting. Uh, That's true. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the Gus Van Sant one, but I'm sure that would be a good like educational film club 
uh, practice. Um, my slash next one is- Sorry, Slashfilm.com <laughs> has a very excellent article defending the Psycho remake. Should you be interested in learning more about why it's a unique and special experiment? So I'd recommend looking that up. I'm sorry to interrupt you, HDU. <laughs> I apologize. No, it's okay. <laughs> Uh, my next one is Persepolis, which is the animated film based off of the graphic novel by uh, Marjane Satrapi. And it's a little bit more on the educational side, definitely teaching about uh, the um, uh, Iranian revolution and everything. But it is an animated film, so a little bit easier for high school students and also just a really good film and story um, about rebellion and coming of age. And speaking of coming of age, my last one is Stand By Me, uh, directed by Rob Reiner and based off of the short story by Stephen King. And I feel like it's an essential coming-of-age film that is just enjoyable to watch for anyone of any age. So uh, I think coming-of-age films are definitely a must for high school high school students. <laughs> Brad, when, uh, what are your picks? And your first pick here, by the way, I'm jealous because I should have included this and I'm, I'm mad that I didn't. I was kind of surprised that no one snagged it before I I was able to get it on our little organization document for the podcast. This is one of my top three movies of all time, by the way. Yeah, there used to be a joke among the commenters that no one could write for Slash Film unless this movie was in their all-time favorites because a lot of us uh, had it in their their top ten of all-time list. And uh, Anyway, the movie is almost famous, um, and this one is right up on the line of this uh, the questioner's uh, requirements because it came out in 2000. Um, it's directed by Cameron Crowe. It's, it seems to be a movie that a lot of teenagers wouldn't be too familiar with, if only because it wasn't a huge hit or anything like that. And it's not as if it's playing on TV all the time or like, like a, a Forrest Gump or a Saving Private Ryan or anything like that. And since it, it takes place in high school, it's the perfect coming-of-age movie. Um, it's I, I just love it. It's not, not only because of how it ties into you know, this career we have and that kind of thing, but it's just this perfect portrait of growing up and uh, how, the people you admire and the music you love. And just, it's, it's, it, there's part of it that has like this dream come true scenario because everybody has this, you know, uh, ideal fantasy where they, you know, meet the people that they love and whose work inspire them so much. And the main character in this movie, you know, gets to live that by touring with a, a you know, a rock band that he likes. Um, so yeah, that's, it's a great coming of age movie. And I actually stuck with coming of age movies kind of for, uh, oh, my, and my... we should note that Almost Famous has a little bit of nudity, so I'm not sure um, if that could be gotten around on, in a high school environment. But yeah, it's fine. Don't even worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. So uh, the next movie that I picked was is Liberty Heights, which is a movie directed by Barry Levinson. And this is uh, one of um, Barry Levinson's movies that are kind of part of his, a, a four movie series that he did in a sense that where they're all tied to Baltimore. And this one's actually uh, loosely inspired by his own life. It came out in 1999 and it takes place uh, in the early 1950s and it follows a, a Jewish family living in Baltimore. And this was during a time when there was uh, still a decent amount of anti-Semitism around and it follows uh, Ben Foster, a young Ben Foster kind of just growing up and dealing with racism and uh, romance and all this stuff. It's, it's a fantastic coming of age movie. This is the only movie on all of these lists I've not seen. uh, You should go out of your way to see it because it's fantastic. It's, uh, it's definitely one of my favorites, favorite period coming of age stories. 
Um, and then kind of in a similar vein, I also picked the movie School Ties, which, uh, considering all the things that have been happening in headlines lately, I don't think you could find a more relevant sort of coming-of-age movie since it follows Brendan Fraser uh, as a Jewish kid who goes to a private school on a football scholarship and ends up uh, being persecuted and treated differently because he's Jewish. Um, there are threats you know, from his classmates, played by Matt Damon, who are clearly uh, racist and make references to uh, you know the Nazis and whatnot. And it's uh, a very timely and also fantastic coming of age story as well yes show show that this week jacob what are your picks well for mine i decided to have a thematic through line which is three movies as a survival kit for 2017 (laughs) movies i feel reflect and comment on a lot of things happening right now that i think that will be confusing upsetting intriguing to younger people maybe there are things going on out there that you're trying to comprehend and maybe need a little bit of art, maybe get a discussion flowing. So I decided to go with that angle. It's, they're all rated R, but you know, if, if you're showing Whiplash, you probably get away with showing these. Uh, the first one is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, released in 1989. I, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on race relations. I'm a white guy. I, I, I'm privileged. <laughs> but it's the best movie I've ever seen about race mainly because it never treats it as a, pardon the horrible pun, black and white situation. I, I feel like race is not a simple question, and this movie refused to treat it simply. It refuses to say that racism is caused by these things. It refuses to say racism is fixed by these things. It portrays it as it is, which is a complex, unsolved problem that's built into American society. And it does it while being really funny and really charming and really sweet. There's romance and humor and so much moment-to-moment vibrancy of what it's like to be in this neighborhood in New York City in 1989. And when it does get tragic and really sneaks up on you, it does so in a way that I think is going to really strike a chord with young people these days who maybe haven't realized that certain events in the headlines involving... Uh, attacks against people of color from people in authority are that's not a new thing and this movie takes it on directly so i feel like it's of the movies i'm going to mention the most directly educational in, in that it's going to open a lot of eyes but it's also powerful and funny and just one of the best movies ever made for my money the next one is a complete 180 and that is paul verhoeven's 1997 masterpiece starship troopers which is enormously violent so good luck getting that show in school just get some waivers ready but it's so cartoonish. I feel like you can make the argument that it's pretty much a Looney Tunes cartoon. And the reason why I want to recommend this, uh, uh, double-folded really. One, I feel like the internet has is training young people to be binary. It's a movie's good or a movie's great. Things are uh, simple. They're, a movie either endorses the character's actions or it doesn't. Whereas Starship Troopers, you are very much watching a movie that does not endorse the subject matter by intention. You're watching a futuristic sci-fi movie about soldiers battling bugs that is also a pro-fascism propaganda movie. And it's just almost in a way styled like a patriotic World War II American Hollywood movie about the brave soldiers going off to fight. But they're fighting for this fascist society. And, we're, and everybody's catchphrases are all about how democracy failed and how 
uh, you should only be allowed to vote if, if you follow these specific instructions to become a citizen. And and does it while being incredibly cartoonish, does it while being very silly, does it while casting soap opera stars in all the lead roles, everybody's really pretty and really like magazine spread model looking. And it just it just does it. In a, it so it does two things. One, it, it requires some nuance to enjoy. You realize that this thing's hokey as hell, but it's doing it intentionally. It's it's not a cheesy movie. It's a movie that's wry and sardonic in its presentation. And two, it's about propaganda. It's about understanding that you're watching propaganda and how the media and the presentation of an idea can shift can shift something so that what what seems ugly under one light is bold and heroic under another. And finally, I want to go with Terry Gilliam's Brazil, which is my favorite movie of all time. Teenagers will love it. It's stoner friendly. You you get high of this movie, you'll have a great time. It's really wild and really crazy. It's really funny. It has like outrageous performances and great character actors doing insane work. But it's also about how dystopias sneak up on you. It's not like you wake up one day and, oh, the world is suddenly awful. Our, our, our government has failed us. Everything is falling apart. It's a slow, gradual process. And as funny as Brazil is and, and as sarcastic as it is about its comedy, it's really a movie about people who have grown used to being in a dystopia. Uh, the world is a nightmare. There are explosions daily. Um, there are secret police rounding everybody up. But it's the kind of movie where a main plot point involves a bureaucratic typo leading to the secret police executing the wrong person, charging the family for his for his torture, for his torture execution costs, and the main character being a bureaucrat, being charged with delivering the refund for accidentally killing the wrong guy and saying, sorry, we, we charge you for the torture. It's and, and it's treated as being an incredibly normal thing, and these characters don't even realize that the world they're living in is this, it's happened so gradually. So these are all political movies. They're all R-rated. They're all funny in their own ways. But I also feel like they're prescient. And I feel like they feel like warnings from a previous era. And I got really dark there. But I, I do think they're all required watching for young people. <laughs> these are a good list of movies that I could, I think, could just, just, yeah, sustain a year worth of Film Club. Um, hopefully you have gotten something out of this. If, if you want to submit... A question to the mailbag. Send it to peter at slashfilm.com. That's peter at slashfilm.com. Please leave your name, general geographic location, in case we use it on the air. We're not going to answer every question on there, but we'll try to answer the good ones. Uh, before we go into the spoiler room, we're going to leave Brad, who has not seen the latest episode of Game of Thrones. Brad, where can we find more of your work? The old Slash Film is where you'll find me writing about movie news, moving pictures, and whatnot. You can also find me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. And, of course, that podcast that I keep telling you to listen to every single time called Go Flix Yourself, F-L-I-X. It's available on iTunes and other podcasting platforms. Cool. Thank you, Brad. Bye. Okay, so now we're going into the spoiler room. If you have not seen the last episode of Game of Thrones, you might want to leave us here. On the site, we have an article called Game of Thrones fans have already deciphered that letter from Eastwatch. Um, it was written by our own Jacob Hall. Jacob, what do we need to know about this letter and the latest episode of Game of Thrones? Well, first of all, I definitely need to throw credit toward the Game of Thrones subreddit 
who work so very hard so we do not have to. Um, but if you remember from last night's Game of Thrones, titled Eastwatch, there was a, a interesting series of scenes where Arya Stark was spying on Peter Baelish, a.k.a. Littlefinger, as he was meeting a series of contacts throughout Winterfell and eventually obtaining a letter sent by Raven some time ago and stored in Winterfell's records. And he puts it in his room and leaves. Arya picks his lock, goes in, searches his room, finds it in the mattress. We can't see what it says. We see like a brief glimpse of it. Then Arya leaves, and we see Littlefinger's been watching the entire time around the corner. We realize that he has played her and wanted her to find it. So that was where the episode left us, saying, oh, Littlefinger wanted her to find this letter, but what did it mean? What could it possibly have said? But the internet being the internet took the brief glimpse of the letter that was revealed and was able to uh, unblur it or do whatever you do with the internet. And They, they used that have, technology from 24 where you press the button and it just becomes clear. Magnify. Yes. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and read the letter real quick. It's a short one. Uh, it says, Rob... I write to you with a heavy heart. Our good king Robert is dead, killed from wounds he took in a boar hunt. Father has been charged with treason. He conspired with Robert's brothers against my beloved Joffrey and tried to steal his throne. The Lannisters are treating me very well and providing me with every comfort. I beg you, come to King's Landing, swear fealty to King Joffrey, and prevent any strife between the great houses of Lannister and Stark. Your faithful sister, Sansa. You can tell this is an old letter because the exception of Sansa... Every single person mentioned in that letter is dead. And <laughs> they've been <laughs> dead for, for a long, long time. So the point of this letter, which you may even remember from late season one, early season two, was that Sansa Stark was being held hostage by the Lancers in King's Landing. And she was forced to send a letter to her brother, Rob Stark, the king in the north, under duress. And we know it's under duress because we saw it happen. And maybe even, even Rob Stark at the time knew it was under duress. These are Lannister words in this in a stark mouth, more or less, being forced by people who could kill her at any second or harm her at any second. Um, but the question now is, why would a Littlefinger want this letter, and why would he want to make sure Arya finds it? And we still haven't seen for sure, but we do know that Littlefinger has more sway over the North if he has more sway over Sansa. And if Sansa is isolated, it doesn't have her sister to bounce off of her, and to back her up, then she's going to be more susceptible uh, to his wiles. And he's a very wily guy. <laughs> so if he can find a way to drive a wedge between Arya and Sansa by making Arya think that her sister is still the uh, bratty princess in love with Joffrey that she, was years, that she was years ago, he can create a situation where he continues to essentially rule the North through Sansa. I'm curious what, what Ben's thoughts here are because... Like I said, the episode doesn't make it clear, but this seems to be what's going on, right? Yeah, that's definitely the read I got. I was just confused at what exactly Littlefinger's endgame is there, because I'm not sure what he wants Arya to think from... It's clear that he wants Arya to think something, that he wants her to have found this note. But for me, it's like, okay, so there's this old letter that... I mean, sure, Arya and, might and, not and have she known. Reali she realizes this is an old letter, right? I, I yes. don't know. I mean, yeah, she must be just because everybody else is dead and she's aware of all the people who have died <laughs> over the past few years. But but I, I'm not sure. Yes, she may not have realized that, she, that Sansa was forced to have written that. But I don't know. Um, 
what that would really do. I, I guess it's just sort of Littlefinger, um, you know, stirring the the uh, whatever the the kindling the of the fire, right? Yeah, like um, just sort of throwing some chaos. He's very fond of of chaos, of controlled chaos, anyway. <laughs> so you know, him just sort of uh, throwing something in there and seeing what might happen. I, I, I sort of look at this as like. Uh, Littlefinger being backed into a corner because Arya has shown up unbeknownst to him. It's one of the few things that he didn't know that was happening in Westeros. And I, I think he's just like, okay, let me try this and see if this does something. I'm not really sure exactly what he thinks Arya, how he thinks Arya is going to react to this and and what specifically it would do to drive a wedge between the two. But uh, But yeah, I guess we'll find out. I guess what I keep thinking about is the last time Arya and Sansa saw each other was literally back in season one. Uh, they were driven apart in, in episode episode seven of the entire series when the Lannisters launched their coup and killed uh, all of Ned Stark's guards and took him prisoner in the cells. And so the, the last time Arya even saw Sansa, she was a spoiled brat in love with Joffrey, in love with King's Landing, and essentially ready to leave the North behind. And so... I, I'm wondering if that's good, if that's what Littlefinger is hoping is that he's not banking on Arya realizing how much Sansa has changed and how much she has endured, and we'll see for sure because because um, Arya has gone through enough and surely understand that Sansa has gone through enough as well. So we'll see. Well, we have run really long. I want to thank all of you for joining us on the podcast. Uh, Jacob, you can find Jacob S. Hall on twitter ben ben Piers on twitter uh ht you can find at h tran buoy on twitter and her podcast mm-hmm. the millennial falcon also on itunes um and yes you the listener we want to thank you for listening if if, if you like the show please go to itunes give us a review rate us uh give us five stars please uh and that will help us a lot uh spread the word and we'll see you tomorrow <laughs>